Here are some of the titles from the Palestine Israel Google Drive. The link is in the show notes for this episode. Some of the titles. There's over 1,700. The show notes says 1,600, but there's actually over 1,700 books and other resources. Some of the titles, just a few of the many, many. Captive Revolution, Palestinian Women's Anti-Colonial Struggle Within the Israeli Prison System. Women in Israel, Race, Gender, and Citizenship by Nahla Abdo. N-A-H-L-O A-B-D-O Correction N-A-H-L-A Nahla Abdo A-B-D-O Let's get the other author's name The first one, Captive Revolution Nahla Abdo, same author. Abdo offers incisive critiques of Orientalist feminism and of the persistence of racism in the Israeli Occupation of Palestine, Angela Davis. Let's check what what else is there. There was one that I read, I'm not sure if it's a book, or if it's a some sort of a thesis by A Miri A A M I R I Muhammad A Miri. The title is Jerusalem Arab Origin and Heritage. you like archaeology, history, anthropology, all that good stuff. The Library, University of Petroleum and Minerals, Dahran, Saudi Arabia. That one I've read a couple pages, not more than a dozen. 
pages this morning. That one was really, really fascinating. That was Jerusalem, Arab origin and heritage, M-A, M period, A period, A-A-M-I-R-Y. It's going to be the first one in the link. Once you click on that link, it's going to be the first uh, publication. The second one is The Turks in Palestine by Alexander Aronson, A-A-R-O-N. S-O-H-N. This is a book here. I haven't read any of it yet. They're large books. I'm trying to find maybe a page or two that we can give a description from the University of Toronto Library by the Ontario Legislative Library, 1980. But this one I really want to check out. With the Turks in Paris, Palestine. See, that's the thing. Once you start reading this stuff and meeting people from all over the world, you discover more than just the two sides that are framed in the media. Once the war breaks out, then everything is framed in two sides, one against the other, when it's actually this History goes back thousands and thousands of years. And even today there are many of the people from the area that, that have roots all the way back to the original people. And they live together and they live in peace and harmony, but we don't hear much about their story. We just hear this slanted view about the war. We don't hear about the thousands and thousands of peaceful coexistence. Boston and New York, Houghton Mifflin Company. Cambridge, 1916. Looks like it was originally published in 1916 by the Atlantic Monthly Company.
is to my mother who lived and fought and died for a regenerated Palestine. What have I done or tried or said in thanks to that dear woman dead? M-A-S-E Macefield Looks like So you have the Turks, you have the Palestinians, you have the whole uh, family of Semitic groups and you have the whole Palestinian groups and all these mixtures between both Palestinians and Jews and Turks and Palestinians and oh it's a fascinating history but you never know it it's a pity how the campuses in the US the students on the campuses are afraid for their life there are people that just walk onto their campuses and create a big dust up and leave a, a big mess for everybody to sort out. But the students are afraid for their lives on some of these campuses because they're being physically assaulted and hurt and losing lives over misunderstandings, false beliefs, and half-truths, and just not having the proper perspective, a broad perspective. For history that goes hundreds of thousands of years to be watered down to just the last 40 years or 60, 70 years I should say to water it down to the from 1948 up till today that's not even half of the history of that region the Fertile Crescent or the Gulf region. It's not even a drop in the bucket. Okay, there's another book we'll tap on by Aboud, Edward Aboud. This one is called Invinc Invisible Enemy. Israel politics, media, and American culture. See, for, for my own purposes, I like to have a broad, 
broad view on the issue is look through here it says invisible enemy Israel politics media and American culture Edward Abu small print okay that's the copyright print I'm trying to avoid reading anything too much I just want to give a little flavor flavor of what these people are writing about they have a website V like Victor O like Ocean excuse me X like X-ray publishing.com Fox publishing.com for those who hold firm to the views that define our ability as a nation to be who and what we say we are. And they give special thanks to a lot of people. We're up to page six and it's seven before you page seven before you get to the contents. Warfare in the 20th century, understanding the causes of war, actions that define the conspiracy. Number two, the organization of intent. History of conspiracy. Conspiracy defined elements of a conspiracy. Scope. Strategies and tactics. International conspiracies. Propaganda and psychological warfare. This is going to be really really a good one. This seems more like a PhD in Palestine and Israeli issues. The mass media, number five, television and cinema, mass media, violence, guardians of political correctness, children and public television, cinema, conclusion, number six, government regulations, number seven, religious wars and ancient hatreds. Okay, so we have 
the cream here. We're not dealing with um, just any level. This is scholarly level writing. So check out the the link in the show notes and you'll be able to access free over 1700 well at least I've accessed I started reading two of the books and just now we just went over two or three maybe four of the books and we did there was no charge to do that and it's the whole entire 100, 200, or 400 pages is right there. And according to the person that posted this on Facebook, there's uh, over 1,700. So if you don't hear from me for another 1,700 years, you'll know why. (laughs) Take care and have a good weekend. metabolism and reduce cravings from curejoy.com c-u-r-e-j-o-y dot com the following four tips are going to maturity this is not their English is not their primary language they're writing um, they're writing it as their second or third language so it's going to sound different the following four tips are going to majority help boost your metabolism and reduce your cravings unfortunately they're just power packed with all sorts of nutrients for correction. Ultimately, they're just power packed with all sorts of nutrients for a major health boost. And health is everything. So read on and then head on out to your local grocery store and stock up number one lemon tea tonic well now if you're taking prescription meds disregard this this will damage your liver if you 
takes certain uh, medicines and you use lemon and even some of the other citrus will make you so sick. Lemon tea tonic, your first new addition for a healthier lifestyle. I'm going to skip over that one. They want you to use what else? Oh, that's a long one. Is that the only one? Number two, avocado. Okay. I really hope you're over the whole quote fat makes you fat end quote rubbish that belongs in the 70s. It is now well known that healthy fat does not make you fat and can actually help you lose weight by reducing your cravings and helping you feel full and sated. Now that much is true for me. I found that to be true. I personally can say that I'm an avocado addict. I eat an entire one a day and avoiding correction and according to Dr. Frank Lipman, I'm doing my body a wealth of good. Quote, don't be afraid of an avocado because you think it's fattening. The often overlooked avocado is a delicious creamy superfood that's simply too health boosting to skip the myriad of healthy fats and nutrients nutrients found in avocados oleic and lutein folate vitamin E monosaturated fats and glutathione among them can help protect your body from heart disease, cancer, degenerative aid, degenerative eye and brain diseases. In, quote, in a study published in Nutrition Journal found that eating half a medium-sized avocado on a daily basis was highly correlated with improved overall diet quality and a 50% reduced risk of metabolic syndrome. Not only did the avocado eaters report a reduction in cravings, stable blood sugar levels, oops, lower body mass index, oh, and smaller waist circumference, oh, I'll go for those first. As <laughs> soon as I get to the store, I'm getting those avocados. Continuing, they also consumed significantly more fruits and vegetables 
and fiber and vitamin K nutrients associated with weight loss. Moral of this story, eat an avocado a day for a boost in metabolism, weight loss, and reduction in cravings. Different ways I incorporate avocado into my eating style. I add half an avocado to my daily green smoothie instead of a banana or fruit. It gives it a great creamy texture and a powerful nutritional boost. Yep. In the morning I enjoy half an avocado as a nutritious side to my morning omelet or in place of potatoes or toast. Good. Number three, as a snack I'll have it with some smoked or canned salmon. S-A-L-M-O-N salmon and a little salt and pepper. Number five, I'll take some Applegate turkey deli meat. Slice some avocado and put it in the center of the deli meat. Roll that up and enjoy. Mm -hmm. They can keep the deli meat. The salmon is enough for me. And once in a while, tuna. Once in a while, chicken. But that's as far as I'm going. <laughs> that's too far. Number three. Green tea. I've talked in great depth about green tea in the past. And I will talk about it again because I noticed a significant water weight loss and metabolism boost when I drink green tea daily. Green tea has the incredible power to shift your fat fighting metabolism into high gear, all thanks to potent antioxidants called EGCG, epigallocatechin gallate, E-P-I-G-A-L-O-C-A-T-E-C-H-I-N. G-L-L-A-T-E, epigallocatechin, gallate, E-C, E-G-C-G. This antioxidant increases fat oxidation by 33%. 33% more fat burn just from drinking tea? 
Yes, EGCG inhibits fat cell development, increases fat excretion, and revs up your metabolism. Green tea helps the body burn calories and fats. And this is the reason why it's used as an extract in popular weight loss products. Drinking the actual tea is a great way to boost your weight loss without compromising your health like you do with diet pills. You can also give matcha, M-A-T-C-H-A, matcha a try if you prefer that over green tea. You can learn more about matcha here. It's highlighted so you can click on it. Note, you may have heard of the damaging effects of green tea on the liver. Here's what I need to clarify. The toxicity you're reading about has to do with green tea extract. The supplement, not the actual whole tea. I don't promote weight loss supplements. Only whole foods. Furthermore, people who were taking this pill from this pill form extract reported liver problems due to their high dosage that was equal to 24 cups of green tea a day. Hmm. I, re I recall a lady that I worked with years ago said that a, her Chinese doctor warned that all of the teas except for oolong tea would eventually damage the kidneys. So, it's excess, anything in excess is going to eventually cause damage. So, word to the wise. Number four, cilantro. C-I-L-A-N-T-R-A. Cilantro. And parsley. Sometimes they look so much alike. Parsley has a few more curly cues and a lot more varieties. Where I go and buy cilantro, I can see it, see the difference. Time to step up your green smoothie game. I know that's right, honey. <laughs> I need as many greens as I can get. Your final new addition for a healthier lifestyle is going to be to add in a third of a bunch of each 
cilantro and parsley with the stems into your smoothies by adding these powerful herbs you're going to not just boost your metabolism but also excuse me but also rejuvenate your skin slow down the aging slow down the aging process and increase your energy it's such an easy and simple addition cilantro and parsley are a powerful duo yeah they are powerful you have to be careful because um if you're a younger woman it might give you breakthrough bleeding between your periods that can happen so you want to be really careful combining those two or just using parsley by itself it can be very powerful talk about wonder herbals these delicate herbs contain vitamins and minerals like beta carotene chlorophyll folic acid iron and are actually considered one of the best foods for fighting disease this is because studies have shown that cilantro binds to heavy metals in the bloodstream thereby purifying tissues organs and blood parsley contains all the chelating vitamins and minerals essential for detox vitamin C beta carotene chlorophyll vitamin K and folate parsley also boosts levels of the master antioxidant glutathione which prevents chronic diseases like cancer Alzheimer's and diabetes together they make one hell of a detoxing duo by incorporating these two herbs into your daily smoothies you will greatly reduce your internal inflammation which as a result will boost your metabolism there are many different ways to enjoy parsley and cilantro daily for me it's just super easy to add them into my daily smoothie which is why I recommend it to you however you can add these herbs to juices salads soups sandwiches 
or whatever entrees you want. Below is the recipe for my daily green smoothie that incorporates many of the awesome lifestyle additions we've talked about here today. It's filling enough to have for breakfast, lunch, or any meal, really. And here it is, Energizing Green Protein Smoothie Re Recipe. Serves one. Ingredients. 10 to 12 ounces of coconut milk. Two huge handfuls of Swiss chard spinach, kale, or whatever greens you like. One third bunch of cilantro with stems. One third bunch of parsley with stems. Half a cucumber, half an avocado, one scoop protein powder. I like the brands Vega, V-E-G-A, or Sun Warrior, S-U-N-W-A-R-R-I-O-R. One teaspoon matcha powder. Squeeze of lemon. One quarter cup frozen pineapple or half a frozen banana, optional. Sprinkle of stevia, S-T-E-E-I-A. I can't stand that, I use honey, organic honey. And as much ice as needed to reach desired consistency and blend well to your health. Okay, and at the end of this article, they have an intermittent fasting for all body types. They have a chart here for ages. How to reduce tummy at any age. Well, that was worth it. That was worth the time. And we saved the best for last. Benefits of water, and again, this information is coming from curejoy.com. Their full name, if you look for them on Facebook, Ayurveda by 
Curejoy, A-Y-U-R-V-E-D-A, Ayurveda by Curejoy. Ten Benefits of Water. One, constitutes 75% of the brain and 22% of bones. Two, regulates body temperature. Three, makes up 83% of blood and 75% of muscles. Four, removes harmful toxins and waste. Five, protects joints. Six, helps body absorb nutrients. Seven, helps convert food into energy. Eight, moistens oxygen for breathing. Eight, helps carry nutrients and oxygen to cells. Ten, protects and cushions vital organs. Thank you for listening. Stay healthy. Stay safe. Take it or not I'm not claiming, pretending to be
and incidents of slavery um that is a term um that goes back all the way uh to the reconstruction era but uh, the task force identified uh, 12 major areas of systemic discrimination uh, that still persists in the society today in the united states and in california uh, and we uh, identified the 12 major areas of systemic discrimination that justifies the need for reparations for descendants of slaves in the state and in the country um, and we call those 12 major areas the 12 major badges and in incidents of slavery. Uh, next slide. Oh, I can do myself. Sorry. So AB 3121 authorized the task force to hold uh, public hearings to pursue its mission. In order to inform the contents of the final report, the task force held 16 public meetings during which it considered public comments, expert and personal witness testimony, in addition to considering the voluminous materials submitted to the task force via email from those unable to attend the meeting. Um, the task force is officially over. Um, but as of June 28th, 2023, that's when we had our last meeting. The task force, task force heard over 80 hours of testimony from over 150 witnesses. Over 30 hours of public comment. Our hearings were those 16 hearings, it was two days each from 9 to 5 each day. Uh, and we received over 3,000 emails and over 300 phone calls. Um, just to give a little bit more uh, background on how this task force came to be, uh, Secretary of State, uh, California Secretary of State Shirley Weber, who's a, the state's first African-American Secretary of State, she was once in the state assembly, and as an assembly member, she introduced legislation called AB 3121 um, because it, one of her interns, who um, was very passionate about reparations, a black woman named Maureen Simmons, came to um, assembly member Weber at the time with this novel idea to um, have a reparations task force on the state level. And so Shirley Weber introduced AB 3121, which is almost a carbon copy of H.R. 40, which is a reparations legislation that has been languishing in Congress for almost 40 years. And so, um, so yes, AB 3121 was championed by Secretary of State Shirley Weber and grassroots activists and was signed into law uh, September 30 of 2020. Um, characterized the two years of our work. Um, the first year was the study phase, and the second year was the development phase. The study phase, that's when we invited over 150 witnesses or so to um, share personal and expert testimony on those 12 major areas of systemic discrimination, on those lingering badges of incidents of slavery. And the second and final year, the nine-member task force, we kind of stopped inviting folks and we're just having really hard conversations amongst the nine of us about what the final recommendations should be based on what we learned during the study phase. And um, the task force concluded, again, June 28th, 2023, when we presented 
our final report uh, to the California State Legislature. Uh, the task force is a legislative or was a legislative advisory body. So our role was advising the state legislature on the types of reparations proposals that they should turn into legislation and that Governor Newsom should then sign into law. And so um, we finished our, our, our work by um, handing off that final report to the state legislature in Sacramento, June 28, 2023. And now it's up to them um, to you know, study our report um, with an open heart and mind, and when they return back to um, the legislature later this winter, early 2024, they will be introducing legislation based on our over 100 uh, recommendations. Uh, just to give a little bit of background about what is reparations, right? The layman's terms definition of reparations is you know, simply just making amends for harm done. Um, as someone who studied international law, um, as some of the um, one of the forms of uh, the international legal definition for reparations, there's five forms of reparations under international law. Most Americans, when they think about reparations, they think about just cash, but there's also restitution. If you think about Manhattan Beach, um, the Bruce Beach example as a form of restitution, where the descendants of the Bruces were able to get their land back, you know, although they you know sold it for cash. That's still a type of reparation under the form of restitution. You also have rehabilitation, so that looks like for, could be free medical services from cradle to grave, psychological services, things like that. Satisfaction is the fourth form of reparations, and that's more symbolic, like a formal apology um, for any harm done. Um, the taking down of Confederate monuments and putting up in their stead, you know, um, monuments um, that may honor, you know, African-American history or just things like that. And then the fifth form of reparations under international law is guarantees of non-repetition, which is one of the hardest forms of reparations to achieve under international law because it's alluding to how do you get the state to um, promise or get the state to stop harming the victim group. Um, often this form also talks about um, or alludes to institutional um, and policy, um, structural policy change. Some domestic examples of reparations include, you know, Ronald Reagan in the late 1980s signed off to um, allow for Japanese American internment camp survivors to receive $25,000 um, in cash uh, for their suffering, um, although we know that was not nearly enough. Um, and Rosewood, Florida, Florida State Legislature, still to this day allows African-American descendants of the Rosewood Race Massacre free state college tuition to Florida state schools and universities. And some international examples include the denazification of, of Nazi Germany after World War II. Um, and a very limited example, you could even say direct victims of police brutality during the South Africa apartheid regime. However, I say very limited because we know the, the masses, the black masses, you know, never received any repair or acknowledgement um, of their harms uh, during the apartheid regime. This is a pretty small text, but this just gives you a quick overview of some of the hearings that the task force um, had or held over the course of the two years. Um, again, we um, invited folks to give personal and expert testimony on you know, the major areas of what, uh, of systemic discrimination. Um, 
and we started, um, substantively started um, our conversations, of course, around the transatlantic slave trade, um, the institution of slavery, and the impetus and implications of the Great Migration. What made black folks want to leave the South or force black folks to come to uh, the West, and what did they experience when they got here? And then we also, again, you know, held hearings on discrimination, housing, banking, tax, labor, gentrification, infrastructure, and homelessness. Since we're in California, we talked about entertainment, sports, arts, and culture. Um, separate on equal education, the criminal legal system, uh, discrimination in technology, um, and international law as well. And this to the left is a picture of the signing ceremony. You'll see um, Governor Newsom, Attorney General uh, Bontos there. Um, you have Supervisor Holly Mitchell, um, Secretary of State Shirley Weber, and many grassroots activists who were part of the, the effort. Um, to the right, you have um, the nine-member task force, which comprises of uh, clergy like uh, Vice Chair Amos Brown. To the bottom right, who is one of 16 students to be taught by uh, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, you have academics like um, Dr. Jovan Scott Lewis, uh, who is a director of geography studies at UC Berkeley. You have renowned psychologists like Cheryl Grills from LMU. Elected officials, Monica Montgomery Stepp um, out of San Diego, City Council, um, Assembly Member Reggie John Sawyer, State Senator Stephen Bradford. And then you also have Don Tamaki, um, who um, helped to overturn Korematsu versus the U.S. And you know, his parents were also incarcerated and received reparations um, as well. So getting to the report, um, what is the thesis essentially um, of, of the report? Um, I won't read all through this, but um, essentially, and you can find this in the executive summary um, of our report, um, essentially what we, we start to discuss, um, we open the report by talking about um, the Emancipation Proclamation, right? that instance in which folk, um, slaves uh, began to uh, become free in mass, but then we also start having a contextual conversation. What was happening during that time? We talk about um, Senator Lyman Trumbull, who was um, a, a radical Republican who um, was part of, um, you know, pushing for um, some type of sustenance and resources for newly freed slaves. And he was quoted at that time saying, you know, it is perhaps difficult to draw the precise line to say where freedom ceases and slavery begins. So there were, you know, people in Congress, um, good-hearted people who were contemplating how do you help this, you know, soon-to-be newly freed um, uh, group of people, and how do you transition them from pure subjugation to freedom, right? Um, what What is the government's role in helping um, these folks in, these, in this group in that transition? Um, and so then the task force, we talk about that brief period of reconstruction in this country that only um, lasted no more than 12 years when actually the federal government, Congress, actually did allocate resources to help this group, um, newly freed slaves, um, transition um, into freedom. Um, one example, um, one of the examples that um, from this period that reflect this expansion of rights, for instance, is um, by 1868, more than 700,000 African-American men were registered to vote in former Confederate states. Um, however, due to the Compromise of 1875, um, right, you saw the withdrawal of, of federal troops from the South. 
um, which left um, black Americans to have to fend for themselves. And so that that brief glimpse of hope within that 12 year period where you saw, um, you know, um, the Freeman's Bureau, the Freeman's Bank, Freeman schools, um, this acknowledgement from Congress um, that there was something that needed to be done to assist this group in this very um, incredible transition that was all um, pretty much erased. All that progress was completely erased due to that compromise effectively ending Reconstruction. Um, also, just to give a little bit more context before I, I continue, you even had in 1883 the U.S. Supreme Court via the civil rights cases pretty much telling Congress um, Section 2 of the 13th Amendment, we know about Section 1 of the 13th Amendment, right? We can give credit to Alva DuVernay for helping the mainstream understand um, Section 1 of the 13th Amendment. That's about the crime exception, right? You can be a slave or be, um, in this country if you're convicted of a crime. But Section 2 is not very well known, and it's about the, it, it's an enabling clause. It allows Congress to enforce Section 1. And in the Supreme, in the uh, civil rights cases of 1883, you have the Supreme Court essentially um, trying to articulate that Section 2 power. And in in that case, you have the Supreme Court saying uh, the 13th, um, the thir the 13th Amendment as empowering Congress to pass all laws necessary and proper uh, for abolishing all badges and incidents of slavery in the United States. Um, but that begs the question, right? And the conclusion that we came up with essentially is that U.S. Congress has failed to acknowledge that any badges and incidents of slavery exist. So thus, how can they even define it if they haven't even acknowledged it? And if they haven't even acknowledged it or defined it, how can they work to eradicate it? Um, and so that's the intervention of the task force. We were essentially doing the work of, of Congress. I told you how H.R. 40 had been languishing in, in Congress for 40 years. AB 3121 was a carbon copy of H.R. 40. If H.R. 40 had passed, they would be doing on the national level what the task force had done in this past two years. Just taking a step back, there are... 13th Amendment legal scholars who are doing the work that Congress should be doing in terms of defining what these lingering badges and incidents of slavery are based on, you know, the 1883 civil rights, uh, civil rights cases. And we invited, for instance, um, law professor Jennifer Mason McAward to um, come share about her seminal piece defining the badges and incidents of slavery because she has come up with a very interesting definition that we took on as a task force. Um, and she defined the badges and incidents of slavery as public or widespread action aimed at any racial group or population that has previously been held in slavery or servitude that mimics the law of slavery and has a significant potential to lead to the de facto re-enslavement or legal subjugation of the targeted group. And then she goes on to say, um, advising Congress, this limited definition will assist Congress in, in identifying ways in which it can fulfill the 13th Amendment's promise of universal civil and political freedom. At the same time, it will provide judicially enforceable limits for the exercise of the Section 2 power. So essentially, uh, Professor Mason McAward is arguing if Congress, at the very least, um, acknowledges badges and incidents of slavery exist, they can use this definition to start, um, you know, um, doing prophylactic legislation, um, introducing legislation that works to eradicate any lingering badges and incidents of slavery that still persist in this society. But they still haven't done that. And that's the thesis of our final report. 
we found that throughout the rest of American history, instead of abolishing the badges and incidents of slavery, the United States federal, state, and local governments, including the state of California, have actually perpetuated and created new iterations of these badges and incidents. The resulting harms have been innumerable and have snowballed over generations. And so this final report focuses on these harms. Um, so thoroughly, we say in our executive summary, have the effects of slavery infected every aspect of American society over the last 400 years that it is, it's nearly impossible to identify every single badge or incident of slavery, to include every single piece of harm done to African Americans. So in order to address this practical reality, the final report of the task force, we just described just a sample of government actions and compounding harms in just a thousand pages. Um, and we organized it into 12 specific areas, as I said at the top of the presentation, um, uh, 12 major areas of systemic discrimination, 12 major badges and incidents of slavery. Historically, some of these badges and incidents of slavery have manifested into, for instance, in the state, proliferation of KKK chapters and meetings, redlining, whites-only towns and neighborhoods, um, laws and ordinances supporting segregation in schools. So as I said, that in terms of the organization of the report, there's 13 chapters, um, substantive chapters. The first chapter is on enslavement. Each of the chapters, there's a California section and a national section. Um, the California section obviously just is all about California-specific history. And then the national section is takes a more national scope because we understood kind of our role as being the first kind of state in the nation to do this. And actually, you know, Congress hasn't done it. So we were kind of even wanting to not just focus on California in this report, but also have a bit of a national scope as well kind of understanding our place in this in this moment. And so after the enslavement chapter, as I said, are the 12 remaining chapters, are those 12 major areas of systemic discrimination that we're calling badges and incidents of slavery. And I'll quickly go through each one. So um, enslavement, um, you know, we can talk about this a little bit more, but that there was in fact slavery um, in California. Right. Um, not only was there almost 2,000 slaves, we learned that through some expert testimony from Professor Stacy Smith out of Oregon State University, um, but there, uh, the state also uh, implemented a fugitive slave law, which was actually very rare for free states. Most free states did not go out their way to implement a fugitive slave law, which empowered uh, ordinary white citizens to deputize themselves to round up free blacks um, and deport them to be re-enslaved in the South or sometimes in on California soil. Racial terror is the first badge or incident of slavery we identify. And again, we talk we give a national scope and a California scope. I'll just focus in this in the interest of time just for California. Um, in California we found that um, California sometimes even held more KKK events than Mississippi or Louisiana. Um, in the city of Brea, for instance, from 1924 to 1936, we found two-thirds of the fire chiefs were part of the KKK, five of the first eight mayors, six of ten councilmen on the board of trustees, and half of the treasurers, engineers, clerks, and marshals. Um, the second badge or incident of slavery we identify is political disenfranchisement, right? We're, we're articulating and um, we're articulating for our community what we know plagues us. Um, that's what I really love about us, um, you know, um, organizing this and calling these, though, these are literally badges and incidents of slavery, political disenfranchisement, 
This is a picture from um, 1952 of African-American Republican candidate for 55th Assembly District, Rayfield Lundy, is inspecting a burnt cross outside of his home in Los Angeles as an example of political intimidation. Um, California also um, passed many voter suppression laws that were used in the South as well. The third badge or incident of slavery is housing segregation. Again, this is, this is a picture from 1952. All of these stats and pictures are from the final report. This is a two men, uh, African-American men, William Bailey and Roger Duncan. They look at the wreckage in Bailey's living room after a bomb exploded in the house. Duncan's house directly across the street was also bombed and um, at the same time, and a note was left threatening the black families on the street if they didn't move out. And so California um, had racial, uh, racially restrictive covenants, right, that segregated communities by race. They also had redlining that disinvested, um, um, created disinvestments in the, in the African-American community. Um, and after California outlawed racially restrictive covenants in the 1950s and 60s, you know, that's when you saw an uptick of this violence, um, as you see in this picture. Uh, so the next badge or incident of slavery we talked about is separate and unequal education. Um, nationally, non-white schools districts get $23 billion less than predominantly white districts in California. We're the fifth, um, I believe, fifth. Um, six, sorry, six most segregated state um, in in the country, um, and most of our, our our education in terms of K through twelve is um, you know fueled by property taxes. And when you talk about and you think about the state's legacy in redlining and racially restrictive covenants, um, you know it, it it makes sense that you know in, in black and um, by extension Latino communities. Um, there's mostly renters, not too many homeowners, um, and all of that is going to feed into less money um, to fuel for property taxes to fuel schools. So this is an observation um, that I made recently. And then racism in the environment and infrastructure. Um, in California, um, black Californians are more likely than white Californians to live in overcrowded housing and near hazardous waste. Black neighborhoods are more likely to lack tree canopy and suffer from the consequences of water and air pollution. The next badge or incident of slavery is the pathologizing of the black family. It's dealing with all the stereotypes that black Americans, black men, black women, black children, and, pro and persecution um, that the black family has had to deal with over generations. Um, and for instance, um, in terms of foster care, just an interesting note, nationwide, African-Americans are 14% of the population, uh, but we make up 23% of, of the ability foster care. So the ninth chapter, or the next badge or incident of slavery, is control over creative and intellectual, uh, creative, cultural, intellectual life. To the, to the right, you see a picture of the famous uh, singer, excuse me, Little Richard, um, he was outside in 1984 protesting his record company. He sold the rights to the song uh, Tutti Frutti for a reported $50. And he received half a cent for each report sold. So there's many African-American artists who, um, you know, talked about their experiences in this chapter about, um, you know, feeling taken advantage of in terms of, you know, intellectual property deprivation. 
this chapter also talks about there's over a thousand like missing patents, right? Um, African Americans have contributed um, vast amounts of inventions, even since slavery, that they weren't able to actually get the credit for, right? Um, we talk about that. We also talk about in California specifically how there are many examples of African American cultural and leisure sites. In California, in Southern California alone, you have Black Beach Resorts in Manhattan Beach. You have Black Beach Towns in Santa Monica. You had um, Sugar Hill, which was a famous African American town in LA, and Central Ave, um, which was a famous jazz site, or Fillmore in San Francisco. All of those major sites, they don't exist anymore. They were completely decimated due to unjust property takings via eminent domain or gentrification or the construction of freeways. Um, so that's what this chapter goes through. The next chapter is stolen labor and hindered opportunity. Um, in California, for instance, we found several Californian cities, um, despite it being seen as this progressive state, um, even as early as 1940s, right, um, didn't start hiring black workers until even 1970. Um, in San Francisco, when the black population in 1970 was 14%, only four of the department's 1,800 uniformed firefighters uh, were black. Uh, the next uh, badger incident of slavery um, is the unjust legal system. It talks about mass incarceration and over-policing. And uh, in California, like the rest of the country, California stops, shoots, kills, and imprisons more African Americans than their share of the population. Um, despite, you know, popular belief in the mainstream media, black Americans remain the number one victims of hate crimes in the United States since the nation's inception. That's what the task force found. Um, um, African Americans are the number one victims of hate crimes in the state of California. And African Americans are the number one victims of hate crimes in the city of L.A. There was a very interesting article that came out in the L.A. Times recently that said, despite the fact that African Americans are the number one victims of hate crimes in L.A., the city of L.A. has deployed no resources towards educating the city about this. And, I mean, if you look at the news, you wouldn't think that, right? You would think that black people in L.A. are um, tearing the city up. But that doesn't tell the whole story. Um, the next chap the next badger incident of slavery, please excuse the graphic nature of this picture, is mental and physical harm and neglect. This is a picture of... Um, Students at the University of Maryland School of Medicine in 1898, um, and they are pretty much mutilate, mutilating African-American women. And I want to draw your attention to not necessarily what they're doing, but what's etched across that table. Her loss is our gain. That was their, um, I guess, um, motto um, for for this this so-called experiment, her loss is our gain. And I think that's really indicative of the African-American experience in this country, to be quite honest, um, in terms of white supremacy. Uh, the loss of the black American community is the gain of the greater society. Um, and so in California, the national trends are similar. Um, national trends are similar in California. There's a seven-year life expectancy gap between white Californians and black Californians. Black babies are more likely to die in infancy. Black mothers giving birth are more likely to die um, than the average Californian mother. Um, and compared to white Californians, black Californians are more likely to have diabetes, die from cancer, or be hospitalized for heart disease, 
or be dealing with multiple ailments at one time. And then the last badge or incident of slavery we discuss is the wealth gap. Uh, we found that the state of California doesn't have a study that, that shows like the wealth gap between white Californians and black Californians, but there is a national study. Um, and then there is a wealth gap study specific to the city of LA. So nationally we found, right, in 2019, white households own nine times more assets than black households. Uh, we found in LA, for instance, um, the median value of liquid assets for native-born African-Americans, those descent from slaves, was just $200, compared to $110,000 for white households and $72,000 for African blacks. I also want to point your attention to um, this um, fact up here, um, which is something that Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. talked about many times before his assassination, right before his assassination. You know, he says something to the effect of what's on this screen, where he said, um, while Congress refused to give the Negro any land, at the same time was giving away hundreds of millions of acres of land um, to white folks for free, um, to uh, uh, mostly to white families, Martin Luther King said, which meant that this country was willing to undergird its newly arriving peasant class from Europe with an economic floor while denying the same opportunity to African-Americans, those descend from slaves, those who've actually been in this country, even before this country was a country. When we talk about African-Americans being here since 1619 and the United States being officially formed in 1776. So what are the present day implications of that? Exclusionary public policy, the federal and California Homestead Act that Reverend Martin Luther King was discussing um, before he, assass he was assassinated. Well, today, as many as 46 million of their living descendants reap the wealth benefits of that exclusionary land transfer. Um, that's approximately one quarter, 25% of the adult population in the United States um, benefit from that exclusionary land transfer. And that's just one example of exclusionary public policy that African Americans were not able to benefit from and thus were not able to build wealth, which is why, for instance, it'll take over 220 years nationally to close the racial wealth gap between black Americans and white Americans. So just to conclude, these are just a sampling. We had, we recommended over 100 policy recommendations for the state legislature to implement. Um, some of them were cash based, but many of them were not. Most of them were not actually. Most of them were non-cash payments related. Um, in the areas of enslavement, we, for instance, advised or recommended that the state create a new state uh, agency um, paying homage to the Freeman's Bureau that once existed in this country, and it would provide ongoing direct repertory justice services to descendants of slaves while also providing existing, uh, while providing oversight to existing state agencies and institutions uh, to ensure that black Americans' rights are being a bridge, kind of going back to that fifth form of reparations under international law, guarantees of non-repetition. Um, in terms of rehabilitation, for instance, we recommended the um, establishment and funding of community wellness centers in black communities and funding research to, to study the rising suicide rates among black youth, who are actually now number one um, victims of, of suicide in this state. Uh, in terms of unjust legal system, 
We recommended increasing efforts to uh, restore the voting rights of formerly incarcerated folks. We recommended for folks to currently incarcerated to be able to vote. And we recommended, for instance, taking out that crime exception clause that's not only in the U.S. Constitution, but also in the state constitution and allows folks who are locked up to be slaves in this state. Um, and if that passes, that'll apply to any and everyone who's incarcerated, not just black Americans who descend from slaves, right? Um, and then also we recommend in terms of education, free college tuition to descendants of slaves at state colleges and state universities like UCLA. Um, and then for housing segregation, we recommended, for instance, providing property tax release to descendants living in formerly redlined neighborhoods. Um, we recommended providing shared appreciation loans and subsidized down payments, mortgages, and homeowners insurance to help increase home ownership, as we know that is one of the primary ways to build wealth in this country and in the state. So that is the end of our presentation. I'm really looking forward uh, to being in conversation with Dr. Stevenson and you all. Um, the t even though the task force is officially over, I was saying that um, the website that is housed by the California DOJ Civil Rights Enforcement Section team, that's the team that helped us with this project, the website is going to remain on, on their website forever. So if folks are interested in watching past hearings, um, looking at the past materials, you can go to that website. Um, also, grassroots organizers are starting to come together to just continue to keep this conversation going. Um, and so I recommend folks go to CaliforniaReparations.info and you can subscribe to the mailing list there for updates if you want to stay involved and get engaged. Um, you can also find any of these past hearings on, on the California DOJ's um, YouTube page as well if you don't want to go to the website. And then you can, um, you know, follow me on my website or on Twitter, um, and that's my Instagram and TikTok handle, too. So I'll just conclude by saying, and I bring this up a lot, um, Tana has
website forever. So if folks are interested in watching past hearings, um, looking at the past materials, you can go to that website. Um, also, grassroots organizers are starting to come together to just continue to keep this conversation going. Um, and so I recommend folks go to CaliforniaReparations.info. You can subscribe to the mailing list there for updates if you want to stay involved and get engaged. Um, you can also find any of these past hearings um, on the California DOJ's um, YouTube page as well if you don't want to go to the website. And then you can um, you know, follow me on my website or on Twitter, um, and that's my Instagram and TikTok handle too. So I'll just conclude by saying, and I bring this up a lot, um, Ta-Nehisi Coates, who is, who is someone that I look up to in his seminal case for reparations published in, in the Atlantic, I believe it was like 2014, um, he, he mentioned, he made a very astute observation that um, African Americans, we have been enslaved in this country longer than we've actually been free. And then Isabel Wilkerson, um, who, um, you know, also is a, um, an esteemed author, um, kind of expounded on that and said it wouldn't be like, I guess, it would be another 100 years until there's actually like a parity between the amount of years that African Americans have been free and enslaved in this country. So we have a lot of work to be done. So like, we're just in a massive kind of gaslighting campaign uh, Three short years after the racial reckoning of, um, of, of George Floyd's murder, you're having people saying, like, you know, we don't need reparations and all this other stuff. But just putting all that into context, what Tana Hesse Coates and even what Isabel Wilkerson is saying, I just want folks to kind of drown out the noise from the naysayers and understand that reparations is an idea whose time has come and it's a debt uh, that's overdue. So thank you. Well, hello, everyone. And uh, first of all, I want to say thank you to Camila and to the, the task force. This is a magnificent effort. You know, I've read a lot of historical documents, and this is absolutely one of the best ones I've ever seen. It is so inclusive. It is it's tremendous that this document was able to come together in such a short period of time, so long overdue. Yeah, so um, first of all, thank you for being the chairperson um, of the task force. What an honor, but also a responsibility. And thank you for staying in the course um, and doing this work um, and continuing to do it, even though now, you know, people aren't shining bright lights on it anymore. We're not talking about it and that kind of thing. Um, so I want to ask you, um, where do we go from here? I mean, what kinds, in order to have these these recommendations implemented um, in our society, in California, but perhaps as also um, a very strong suggestion and recommendation for the rest of the nation and the rest of the Atlantic world, where black people have been enslaved and have never benefited from the labor of their ancestors or their own labor um, equitably, where do we go from here in terms of making sure these recommendations get placed into law and get done in the state of California? 
Thank you for that question. So where do we go from here? Um, so January most likely is going to be the year, I mean, the, the month that um, California state legislators are going to be able to introduce um, our recommendations into legislation. Um, Senator Stephen Bradford, who served on the task force, um, he's uh, a state senator. He was able to introduce what's called SB 490 um, into the state legislature actually about a month or so ago on a technicality because SB 490, as it was originally written, it would have extended the life of the task force to allow us to continue to socialize the final report from now until the next year. Um, he gutted that language to then just include the language um, from our final report, the recommendation to create the new state agency. Because the idea was uh, we did a monumental task, we completed our work, we did our interim report, we did our final report, um, our mission was done, so we didn't necessarily need to be assembled as a nine-member task force any longer. And so his idea was let me just gut that out and just put in the language of one of our recommendations to keep the conversation going, um, to keep the momentum going. And so um, SB 490, um, as a gut and amend, that would create the California uh, Freedom Affairs Agency, which is one of the major recommendations from the task force. But to your point, um, legislators won't be able to debate that legislation until January or February 2024, and they most likely won't be able to introduce uh, any new legislation until that time as well. So we're probably not going to see any uh, real movement from the legislatures until January 2024. But I can hear I, I hear from the California Legislative Black Caucus that they're super excited and eager and they're already planning to even introduce like a comprehensive reparations bill package based on um, all of those recommendations. Wonderful. That's, that's incredible. Um, I saw in the report that 60% of Californians believe that black people in California um, deserve some form of reparations. And that's the majority of people in California. And so, but we do also know that there's a vocal minority of people who don't want this to happen. So one of the things that very much impressed me about the report was that you built in that educational piece that um, um, all of that narrative about what the history is so that people could understand where um, the notion of reparations is founded. All right. So when people come to you and say, you know, um, why should black people get reparations when all these other people have had traumas, etc., and you're not, and they're not, or we're not getting reparations, what are you saying? So, uh, to your point, um, so two of the task force members, Don Tamaki and Cheryl Grills, they were part of the Public Education Committee. And so, in the final report, there's a chapter on, you know, common questions and common responses. And just to kind of, like, educate folks, and if folks want to, like, read that chapter and then kind of go spread the gospel, they kind of are prepared with some responses to the common questions. And so, to your point, one of the common questions in that chapter is, you know, well, you know, black Americans aren't the only groups of people who are, have been marginalized and have dealt with um, harms or may not, who may be owed reparations. And I believe Don Tamaki and Cheryl Grills essentially just concluded by saying, no, that's true, right? We can hold space for several different communities, but we have to understand 
that the black American experience, those who from dis- descent from slaves, is a very unique experience. No other group has been enslaved on U.S. soil for 255 years. No other group after that has been subjected to 90 plus years of legal subjugation. No other group after that has really had to, had to bear the brunt in dealing with the legacy of slavery and those badges and incidents of slavery um, that have really permeated through the society, but it's really impacted, you know, descendants of slaves um, the most. So, you know, we're not saying that, you know, um, other groups aren't entitled, but we're saying, you know, this is a unique story and a, a unique history that deserves unique repair. Absolutely. But one of the things that really impressed me, too, was your recommendation that the school system take up the education and that the school system absolutely include this information in its curriculum. And can you talk a little bit about that? Thank you for uh, reminding me. So one of the recommendations, and the task force has already started to do this before we were, um, before we sunset, we hired a couple of professors from UC Berkeley to help us to develop a curriculum that, um, if passed, you know, through the legislature, would be adopted through like K through twelve curriculum. So we're already working on that uh, with the UC Berkeley professors. Okay, so let's get to the nitty gritty. How much money am I going to get? <laughs> no, I'm only teasing, but I want sort of. But I wanted to find out, you know, what what what? How does this play out in the average African American life? So in terms of compensation, you know, when we started talking about compensation as a task force, that's when, like, Fox News and Breitbart, Daily Mail, they just started really, like, paying close attention to the task force and really distorting Mm -hmm. what the task force came up with. And I feel like we're still kind of dealing with that today, where even people who don't read those publications probably kind of have this idea in their mind and the idea the mainstream headline was oh the task force recommended the state give 1.2 million dollars to every black person by show of hands who heard who heard that i did hear that i got excited (laughs) that's not true excited the task force did not recommend that or one of the headlines was like oh the task force recommends the state um give black americans like 800 billion dollars like in the next fiscal year like that's not what the task force recommended this is what the task force did and it's very boring we hired five economists and public policy experts to help us calculate the monetary losses uh, over time of the african-american community across several different areas we um, they were able to just focus on five within that very short amount of time they're able to gather enough data for just five to make a claim that the state of California owes reparations in the form of cash in those five particular areas because there was evidence to show that the state um, either excluded people through exclusionary public policy or discriminated African-Americans through exclusionary public policy. So just to conclude, those five areas are health harms, devaluation of black businesses, mass incarceration over policing, unjust property takings, and housing segregation. So those are the five areas where the five economists and public policy experts were able to gather data to show, look, the state of California is culpable in perpetuating discrimination against black Americans in those five areas. And they were able to quantify um, that, that the discrimination in monetary losses. So just to conclude, I know it's a little confusing, but to conclude, the, ta- the task force, through our economists and public policy experts, found that 
Over time, the black American community has lost $800 million in um, revenue and wealth building potential across those five areas due to the actions of the state in and of itself. And so what the task force is recommending is the state legislature read Chapter 17. That's where all those formulas and all that breakdown is. And then it's up to the state legislature to prescribe an actual monetary amount based on um, that methodology that we that we came up with. So it's kind of it's kind of hard to answer your question like, oh, how much are we going to get? It really is up to the state legislature, depending on if they adopt you know our methodology and the extent to which they do. If they do, it could look like up to one point two million dollars per person, or it could look like something different. And per person, I mean per descendant of a free and enslaved black person living in the United States prior to 1900. Wow, that sounds exciting. I'm, I'm just very excited about that. Can I think about anything else? No, I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> so, um, no, but I wanted to, to ask you, so this is looking at five different categories, but when you were showing your PowerPoint presentation, there were many categories, 19, 20, something like that. So are these economists going back and also going to do that cost analysis for those other categories as well? That's a brilliant question, and that that is something that, um, that the new state agency, if it's actually um, formed and passed into law, um, the economists in that Chapter 17 pretty much recommended, look, we weren't able to um, gather enough data across all those badges and incidents of slavery that the task force identified. We were only able to gather enough data to make a solid argument and claim for five, but they recommended um, that the new state agency, which uh, tentatively would have a data collection branch, um, that branch would um, be would be doing that cost and cost benefit analysis and um, doing the formulas for all the other badges and incidents of slavery that we weren't able to have enough time to actually do the the calculations for. It. Okay, I, I understand that. Um, one question that came to mind was, and I wasn't able to read the entire 1,000-page report. Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rely on you to give me this information. In the report, do you all talk about the amount of um, income the, um, that was produced by enslaved people? Um, I, we do. I mean, nationally, we, we talk about, for instance, that the, the infrastructure of this country, by and large, built by slave infrastructure that still exists today, like the White House and the Capitol. And to your point, we talk about, you know, the revenue um, um, that slaves generated. We even had Thomas Kramer, who was a public policy professor, a part of our um, our, our team. And he even, you know, brought up his, his research in terms of reparations. It's, he came up with, like, quadrillion figure just based on... Um, I guess you could say, like, lost wages of, of slaves. Just So just for slavery in and of itself, you know, you, we had a team member even saying, like, there's, you know, quadrillion in terms of um, lost wages for slaves. But I would love to hear um, your thoughts, too. Well, you know, the thing is, is that I think few people, re re you know, know or think about the fact that um, the work that enslaved people did, did you know, Again, the economies, whether or not you're looking at Wall Street, whether or not you're looking at the insurance industry, whether or not you're looking at the agricultural um, or agrarian um, economies that were built, shipbuilding, of course, all the things that happened um, that allowed for the slave trade. The United States built more, people in the United States built more slave ships than any other, in any other country. Um, 
you know, that we provided uh, 75% of the, well, I mean, the cotton worldwide, you know, in 1860. Um, 75%, 80% of the, of the cotton that went to industrialized England came from cotton picked by enslaved people in the United States. But, you know, more than that in terms of our industrialization, um, you know, um, industrial revolution in the United States. And so I think it's very hard for people to understand, you know, the federal government benefiting from the taxes of enslaved, you know, you had to be taxed on your enslaved people. Um, newspapers lived off of the advertisements for fugitive slaves and the selling of slaves. You know, so almost every place we lived, lawyers, of course, were used by slaveholders to purchase um, enslaved people and build, make those contracts you know, finance the, the things that were sent abroad that were um, the goods that we exported outside of cotton, you know, um, as well, too. So, you know, when we look at the ways in which the wealth um, was produced in the nation, you know, prior to the, um, the Civil War, and then even after the Civil War as well, as black people were uh, forced back into the fields as sharecroppers, as renters, etc., uh, were underpaid, under underemployed, um, etc., and forced labor of children, um, you know, people on the chain gang, and you know, and all this other kind of stuff that was going on. It, it's incredible um, that people get really nervous about how much um, uh, how much wealth would it take to reimburse the black population for all that was done to start the nation and to help the nation become the great nation that it is. And I think people also forget that, you know, other that throughout the, the Atlantic world, and slaveholders were reimbursed for when emancipation came. For example, those people in Britain who owned enslaved people in the Caribbean were given what is today would be $30 billion when um, they... Um, when they when they freed, same for those people who in France, I mean in the French Caribbean, um, etc. And Abraham Lincoln, that was his plan, was to reimburse slaveholders. Of course, he was assassinated, and the plan never came and came to be. So the notion of reparations, you know, it, it's not a new one, um, but in the 19th century, it primarily was centered on, you know, um, slaveholders trying to be paid by the federal government for, quote-unquote, taking away um, their property. And so, um, you know, it, it's, it's something very interesting to think about when, um, when we think about this particular issue. But I do want to give people a chance in the audience um, to answer questions. Yeah, can I just I have uh, a quick thought? I, so from an international law perspective, my observation to that when you're like, across the Atlantic world, slaveholders received reparations. And from an international law perspective, reparations, before it, it took a human rights-centered approach, it was about what nations owed nations, particularly right. what losing nations owed to winning nations after war. Right. So you would think if that's a, um, a understood concept, then it would be the Confederates as the losing side who should have been paying reparations to the Union. But that's not how it went. No, it's not how it went. And, you know, when, when the, the Confederates of America formed um, in 1861, um, in terms of world nations, they were ranked number seven in terms of their wealth 
and the United States of America was ranked 11th. And that would tell you something about the, the, what the value of enslaved black bodies, because that's a huge part of the wealth, but also of the cotton crop that they were producing that was going to be sold internationally that, you know, um, helped to amass this status as a world power, a world financial power um, at that moment. So, um, at any rate, so we're going to open it up now for questions. And does, does somebody have um, these microphones in the audience? So, that, so I can't see because the lights are right in my eyes. But um, if you have a question, please do raise your hand and someone will come up. Yes, this person right here has a question. Okay. Thank you, uh, Ms. Moore, for the uh, work you've done on the task force and for being here tonight to give us a summary. Um, you'll forgive this tangential association, but I'm sitting here thinking about Mothers Against Drunk Driving. And they changed the attitudes and the culture about drinking and driving almost overnight. And I'm wondering if the task force has considered some kind of public relations campaign akin to that. Um, I'm looking for a reparations billboard in Westwood or a commercial TV or something on my computer or something to interrupt my day on my text, like, you know, every other political campaign that comes through. I'm wondering if you guys have uh, thought about that. Thank you. That's a great question. And uh, we had conversations around community engagement and public relations as a task force. And again, uh, the California DOJ, they were the ones giving us assistance and kind of giving us legal advice. And we even had a conversation about like we wanted to earmark funds for billboards and things like that and essentially the DOJ was saying we weren't allowed to. <laughs> I don't know why. But we just had a lot of struggles when it came to public relations and community engagement to be quite honest with you. Um, but I know um, in talks with the California Legislative Black Caucus, they actually are already in early conversations around um, allocating some resources to do um, a public education uh, campaign. So, um, well, I think that's an excellent, absolutely excellent recommendation um, because I mean, this room should be full. You know, this room should absolutely be full, and we cannot let. Now that the report is done, we cannot let. You know, the recommendations just fall by the wayside because nobody knows about it, nobody's thinking about it, nobody's talking about it at this time. So, you know, oftentimes wonderful things are done to move us forward as a people and as a nation. And then what happens is all these little stepping, these little blocks are put in place. And before you know it, that those initiatives have disappeared in the next 25 years to crop up again. So we have to make sure that that does not happen this time. So somebody else has that. Oh, you have your hand up. Yes. Yes. Oh, there was a person up there, too. I'm sorry. If I don't call on you, just scream out because I really cannot see you. Oh, okay. All right, then. Then I can. Okay. Hi. Thank you, folks, for being here tonight. I really appreciate all the presentation that was presented. It was very informative. My question is regarding if the task force ever investigated or looked into resources for um, tracing the genealogy of U.S. Um, 
black Americans who maybe are finding it difficult to see if their ancestry is tied to slavery. I think right now resources would be, you know, the oral history that's passed down generationally, maybe mail-in DNA services to trace that ancestry, but was anything explored by the task force? Or, or is it a matter of self-identifying? I'm just really curious. Thank you. That's a really great question. So I think Claudia alluded to this um, in her opening remarks. That when The task force had a really kind of hard conversation about like who should be eligible for reparations. And it was a 10-month like debate around that question. Um, and Unfortunately, it, it seemed like it was two camps, like, oh, should it be like a race-based standard? So like all black people, regardless of you know, origin, regardless of whether you know you had ancestors enslaved in the country, or should it be what we're calling like lineage-based or specific? So those who are descendants of slaves, those who were descendants of enslaved Africans who were forced to labor in the United States. Um, so we invited six expert genealogists to help to, to provide expert testimony on like the feasibility of um, this lineage-based standard if the task force went with it, including Hollis Gentry, who's like the, the lead genealogist at the National Museum of African American History um, and Culture in Washington, D.C. And we also invited Assemblymember Shirley, well, Secretary of State Shirley Weber to give expert testimony um, because we were just at a standstill around like this question. And she pretty much said when she um, brought this bill to mind, she had a lineage-specific criteria in mind. Not only descendants of slaves, but also descendants of free blacks who were living in this country prior to 1900, because, you know, free blacks, they also, in her, um, what she articulated, you know, still had to navigate a very precarious society. Um, even California, you had free blacks in the California conventions, right? Um, having to secure the, their rights as free blacks and, and things like that. So, um, but just to conclude, you know, the six expert genealogists, you would assume because they're genealogists, they would have come to testify and say, yes, we're for a lineage-based standard. But that was like a really um, arduous um, panel because the genealogists, they were really kind of litigating the feasibility of it. And we ended up having like to take a vote towards the end, a poll of all the genealogists. Are you guys for a race-based standard because lineage is just too hard? Or are you for a lineage-specific standard? And five of the six genealogists said a lineage-specific standard is feasible um, with uh, um, ample resources from the state. And so um, that's kind of the extent that the task force um, kind of went in terms of, you know, concluding, okay, we'll do a lineage-based standard. But one of our recommendations is the creation of that new state agency, paying homage to the Freemans Bureau that once existed in this country. I think W.E. Du Bois in Black Reconstruction, I learned very recently, he said that he, the, the Freemans Bureau was supposed to be a permanent institution. It was never supposed to be temporary. And so that's kind of like the, this new state agency that we're recommending kind of pays homage to that. It's a permanent state uh, resource where descendants of slaves can get ongoing respiratory justice services but one of those branches would be a genealogy office. That's actually the first branch that folks would have to interact with. A board-certified genealogist would be a part of that agency and helping folks because the idea is, the task force concluded, and I'll conclude, that the burden of proof, so to speak, should not rest on the individual. It should really rest on the state. The state should, be having, should have the resources to help people navigate that. I'll conclude by saying recently I had a talk with some black Brazilians. There's a um, 
Diva Moreira. She's a very famous activist in Brazil. And I w drove down to San, San Diego State University this past week to hear her talk about her fight for reparations in Brazil. And I learned from the Brazilians after when we went to dinner that they have racial quotas. They have affirmative action. And on top of that, they have racial quotas um, for, for education and stuff like that. And it's race-based. So they were telling me that there's committees where you have to go and show and prove your blackness and and it's self-declared right so it's like okay i'm black i want high i want to you know high uh I, you know free education or whatever you have to go to a committee and show yourself show that you're black and they're saying that it can get really toxic and problematic because they'll be looking at your skin color they'll be looking at the width of your nose they'll be looking at your lips and it can get really problematic and that's one of the arguments where I was like we don't want a race-based standard here because it's going to have to be self-declared and then you're going to have you know it's just going to be a mess you're going to and so you know counterintuitively when, when we when we packaged the argument lineage versus race a lot of people were like oh lineage that's too divisive that's too complicated when really it's the race-based standard that can get really divisive and, and really messy and I just want to add to that, too, that I think that um, it's a little bit, Brazil is very different from the United States because they've always um, had 16 categories of, of people between black and white, including indigenous and, you know, um, too. So they've always had 16 categories, and so they've always been very um, colorist-focused in a way in terms of the state itself, not just your family members. But, you know, um, but the state itself. The other thing about Brazil that we don't have, unfortunately, is that because it was Catholic, predominantly Catholic, then they have um, birth and death records that go all the way back to the 16th century. And so um, so it, it's, it's much easier, actually, to claim your descent from an enslaved person because the Catholic Church was very careful, even in rural areas, to note people who were born um, and that kind of thing um, so but there is a new project that's coming out of um, University of Boston Boston College um, in which it's called the, the um, enslaved naming project where people are they've got a huge grant from the federal government and some other agencies and they're trying to actually reestablish families by finding all the names, you know, going through the plantation records, but also going through the federal census, by also going through, you know, oral traditions, um, oral stories, um, etc., to, to put together um, black families from the beginning, you know, from 1619, and some of those families still exist, because I know one family exists in Hampton, Virginia, that arrived in 1619. So, but anyway, they're working very diligent on doing that. And so there are these different pieces of a puzzle that are out there that have to be united. Okay, and I'm hoping your Freeman Agency will be one of the united forces. Yeah, so this man, do you still have a question? Yes. Okay. Um, <coughs> good evening, and thanks for being here. Um, I guess my question pertains to the facts. And historically, going back to the Neolithic period, 11, 12,000 years ago, there have been slaves. Slaves have been part of every culture, like it or not. Um, Muslims were slaves to Christians. Christians were slaves to Muslims. They existed in Asia. They existed in Africa. And I've heard a lot of talk tonight about the overall condition of the 
However, we're focusing on California like you, I'm an attorney, so I look at this from a legal perspective, which is where much of the foundation is. Factually speaking, and I'm curious to know how the panel addresses this, factually speaking, California became a because that's what we have to focus on, California. So we're talking about getting money from the state for reparations. And the reality is, whether you call it restitution or otherwise, it's still money. So the state became a state in 1850. The state's constitution forbids slavery. Uh, in 1850, the population of the entire state, according to the U.S. Census, was about 92.5 thousand people. That's the population of Santa Monica. Now imagine Santa Monica's population spread across the entire state of California, of which experts that I've read said up to maybe 1,500 people were slaves. And you indicated maybe up to 2,000, which no matter how you look at it is a very small number. And it was very short-lasted as well, if nothing else for commercial reasons, because the miners didn't like the idea of people from the South coming in with free labor to compete with them. So we have case law from that you mentioned the fugitive case law. The fugitive case law actually failed because uh, several cases were brought in the early 1850s, and every time the court sided with the African, the slave, uh, and, and against the white slaveholder, um, except for the Perkins case, except for the Perkins case. But in 1855, the legislature let that statute lapse, so it was no longer good law. The first senator was uh, uh, an advocate and he was an abolitionist. And he was also one of the first people to run on an anti-slavery campaign. So my family came to America in the early 1900s. If you look at the map, only 92,000 people were in California at the time of potential slavery in California. And it was de minimis at that point. The vast majority of people in this state, and this is where I think the problem is going to be for your legislation efforts, did not come here during slavery. The vast majority of people like, like me going, I had nothing to do with it. Sorry, folks, I had nothing to do with it. And most people I've met, good luck finding out if their family was originally in, as you said, it's the genealogy, not, not the, the color of your skin really is an issue. So how do you address the population? And I was here for the Frank Geary lecture, and I couldn't get in. There were lines were around the building. I came here tonight at like five or six, because like, there's going to be a huge crowd. This is going to be such a controversial thing. I was shocked to see people weren't coming out on both sides. And maybe that's another problem, that you don't have people and you know saying, where's my million dollars? And I think a lot of the, how do you respond to a lot of the population saying, this is, and to your point, 60% of NPR's poll said they were against, Californians were against the reparations. NPR is not a right-wing media outlet, with 13% abstaining from giving their opinion. So the majority is not in favor of it. So this is a big uphill. And you mentioned the, the people who had cotton, they were we, we, uh, they were given money for losing their slaves. So what, has there been any thought, this is the second part of the question, since I didn't have slaves, none of my ancestors had slaves, we weren't here in the 1800s, and most of the people in the state didn't have slaves or were not here in the 1800s, why not focus your legislation on saying the people who are the ancestors of slaveholders get their money from the ancestors of the people who had the slaves and benefited? as opposed to spreading it across the board, because that's the logical part. So how do you overcome that? Because if you're trying to literally get this passed in the legislature, these are the hurdles you're going to face. Another hurdle I might mention, and you're an attorney, if you had a, a jury of nine, which just one, but this is your panel. Your panel consisted of nine people, but they were all African-American except for one. 
if you were a lawyer and you represented a, an African-American client and had a jury of all white people, wouldn't that be the first thing people would point to and say, I don't, I don't buy your panel because your panel was, didn't have any other races except for one other person. So those are things that I'm, I'm curious to know and how you'd respond to, because at the end of the day, we can all sit here and say, oh, we wish we had this, but you've got to get it through the legislature. I just want to say, thank you for your question. I just want to say really quickly, and I know you're going to address this, a couple of things. First of all, the inf the, polls, the poll that I saw did not say the same thing as your NPR poll. And so the, my poll was taken from your, um, right, from your, so you can tell them exactly what poll it is. Secondarily, the task force has not been about just slavery. The task force has been about slavery and then everything that happened after slavery, which included segregation, Jim Crow, lynching, um, house bombs, um, you know, being excluded from equitable educational resources, um, being excluded from land ownership. And so those immigrant families that are coming in, for example, are being offered, as was showed on the slide, you know, free land or land for very little when black people are not allowed to have that. So it's, it's not just about what happened with slavery. It is about what happened after slavery, and it also is about the fact that the 200 and so years where slavery was in effect and legal in this country, it created a great nation economically, politically, um, and, and, and it allowed immigrants to come in afterwards and to benefit from that foundation and those resources and those opportunities that immigrants coming after the era of slavery were able to take advantage of and move up very quickly into another um, class, into another sector of our society, having access to education, have access to health care, have access to voting, have access to fair trials, um, etc. And I'll just corroborate everything that she said. And in fact, um, the task force, most of the recommendations, it's about the legacy of slavery. Our justification for reparations is about the legacy of slavery, the lingering badges and incidents of slavery. We focus on, for instance, uh, California's unique history in enslavement and being one of the only free states to uh, enact the fugitive slave law, no matter how short, just to disrupt this myth and narrative that California was a free state. And we talk about slavery on a national context because, as I said earlier, we're the first state in the nation to do this work. U.S. United States hasn't done this work either, so we understood our scope and our role in this moment, and we wanted to talk about uh, not only the, the legacy of slavery, but of course the foundation, which is slavery in and of itself. But the justification, the argument for reparations in the state of California is not um, necessarily even about slavery. It's about the legacy of slavery. It's about those lingering badges and incidents of slavery. It's about those stats and data points that I talked about earlier and what she talked about as well. For instance, like I said, the Federal California Homestead Act, that's, a, it, that's an exclusionary public policy that went majority to white Americans that still have present-day implications today over 40 million, almost 25% of the white adult population living today. Most, many of these people are white immigrants, people who were not present in the United States during slavery. Still today, 
um, reap the wealth benefits of that exclusionary land transfer. Either still have that land that California or the federal government gave for pennies on the dollar and excluded the opportunity for African Americans, or it's a part of their generational wealth because they sold it. Like that's one example. And the chapter, the tenth chapter, stolen labor and hindered opportunity. I literally showed a slide of the various different types of white immigrants who were here in the fifties and sixties who had the same amount of skills, if not less, than black Americans, but were getting more money at their jobs than African Americans. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about the state of California didn't ratify the 14th and 15th amendments until the late um, 50s. We're talking about how the state, we found through our economists and public policy experts that the state redlined um, in um, uh, our communities from 1933 to 1977. And we found, we came up with a calculation as to how much the, uh, the black American community has lost due to that exclusionary public policy, due to the actions of the state itself, right? Being relegated to the projects and not being allowed to freely move in the country that we built so that we could build wealth in the one and only really ways that you can build wealth in this country. And that's through home ownership. I think the last, one of the last things that I'll say is you can say that yes, slavery was all over the world, but slavery was very unique here. Right, it was very unique here. It was hereditary, right? There was called something called like partis sequitur ventrum, right? Slavery was, was born through the mother. If you were born to a black woman, you were you were um, from conception deemed to be a slave. Like that was not necessarily, or really, that was unique to the United States. In other societies. Slave, being a slave was not hereditary. It's something that you could ascend out of. For, you, for black Americans, that was not the case. Well, what, what I'd like to say about that is that I, I wrote a book in 2015 called What is Slavery? The first chapter deals with the fact that slavery has existed since the early period, and it has existed in every society. All my lectures deal with, my, uh, all my classes, when I begin my lectures, I begin with that. We look at Greece, we look at Rome, we look at... You know, um, slavery existed in Asia, it existed in, in North America prior to European contact, in South America as well, um, in Europe, of course, or in Africa um, as well. And so, yeah, it is a part of, 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 of world of our lives. It's a, it's a part of world history. It exists today in our society. I mean, there are at least 30 million people who are enslaved in the world today. It's never going to disappear. But that doesn't give us a reason not to deal with an issue, not to deal with a problem. The other thing, too, is that there are not a lot of people here today. There's a lot of things happening, and we have to make certain that this, you know, stays in people's uh, purview, that they get focused on it. But what I like to tell my students, and, and I'll say it to this audience, um, because we oftentimes feel like initiatives like this that make the nation better can't move forward, okay? cannot move forward. Ah, that's too much. Ah, it's not going to happen. Da, 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 da. You know, um, in 1830, there were 2 million black people enslaved in the United States. In 1860, there were 4 million black people enslaved in the United States. In 1830, the organized abolitionist movement began, began in the United States. And the United States by 1860 was the largest slave society in America, larger than Brazil. Okay, and nobody thought in 1830 
when the abolitionist movement became organized, that we, that it would end slavery 35 years later, and it did. Okay, and so it, you know the Civil War, the turn in the Civil War was not just because of military might or military losses. You know, in terms of Lincoln having to employ you know black soldiers, in terms of uh, black people and black people were taking their certainly were taking their freedom, but it was also because the ground was set through the abolitionist movement that only began 30 years prior. And so anything can happen in this country. Anything has happened in this country. And it's just the will of the people to do the freaking right thing. You know, whether or not it's cash, and, you know, thank God, I'm employed. I, I don't need cash, okay? I can't say that for my ancestors because I do know that they struggled. You know, my father was fired from one of his jobs because he was, he couldn't be a supervisor over white people at that job, okay? So everybody has a story like that, you know? But what I'm saying is that looking at your figures, looking at the historical truth, and, um, and looking at the will of the people as they continue to reflect on this issue, this can happen, and it should happen in some way, shape, or form, and it has happened. And you have lots of examples of it happening in this country and also globally. The last thing I'll say is the Berkeley Intergovernmental Studies poll uh, was released about a month or so ago. They polled 6,030 registered voters, a mix um, of political ideology. Uh, many of them were uh, moderates um, as well. And there were three questions asked. Um, Do you think the state is doing too much, too little, or just enough for black people? Uh, and the other question was, do you think that black Americans are still dealing with the legacy of slavery? And the other question was, have you heard about the task force and the work that they did over the two years? And then the last question was, um, what do you think about cash payments? Do you agree with that recommendation? So out of the 6,030 um, people polled, the majority of people said that the state is doing too little for black people. That's actually a positive, right? That the state, a majority of folks polled and they extrapolated that to say the majority of Californians believe that the state is doing too little for black people across counties. I think the only county that said the state is doing too much for black people was Riverside County. Um, on the question of, do you think that the legacy of slavery still exists and is still affecting black Americans? The majority of folks polled said yes, the legacy of slavery still exists and is still predominantly affecting black Americans. So that's two like silver lining from the poll that did not get you know mainstream news. One, majority of Californians think the state is doing too little for black people. Majority of Californians believe that the, the legacy of slavery still persists and still affects black Americans. Majority of those who polled knew about the task force. But when it came to that last question about do you um, agree with cash payments, 59% said they were against it. Um, actually, but when you really disaggregate the data, it was really the Republicans that were like bringing those numbers down. It was like 94% of conservatives were strongly against it, but there were 6% of Republicans who were for it, so that's good. <laughs> uh, but in the top two reasons for why the majority of folks were against it, and the majority of Democrats actually weren't in favor. 
But it just doesn't seem like that when you see that 59% in total are against it because of the Republicans drawing the numbers down so much. Um, Excuse me, but against cash payments, but all forms of reparations? Um, the, que- the question was just about cash. Because I think in the slide that I saw was just cash, just reparations. Yes. Yes. So, so is that saying that 60% of this young man said 60% are opposed to all kind, all forms of reparations? So in the Berkeley IGS poll, it was just cash reparation. Oh, I see. Okay. Yes. Well, I'll apologize if I made a mistake in reading the poll. I'm very sorry. Um, but essentially, um, you know, that's just, so what I'm saying is the majority of Californians are actually in support of reparations. They understand that the state is doing too little. They understand the legacy of slavery still affects black Americans. Um, they just don't agree with the cash part. And the first, um, the two uh, strongest arguments against the cash part was, what we talked about before, was what about other groups who've been marginalized and then the taxpayer burden argument. And, you know, you know, we have in the task force final report in our chapter on public responses, we have, you know, cookie cutter answers to all those questions. It's really just about in this next year or so, working with legislators, community organizations, multicultural organizations and institutions, um, through a public education campaign, um, and just continue to, um, I guess, thoughtfully address those two arguments. Because if we thoughtfully address those two arguments within the next year or so, I think we will see, of course, no matter what, some form of reparations in this next upcoming year. But maybe if we do this right, hopefully, um, um, we can even see cash payments in the next two, three, four years. But doesn't the federal government have to share part of the burden of the California taxpayer? Yes. So, um, and one of our final recommendations is actually to transmit our final report to the Biden administration and to U.S. Congress. And that was one of our uh, recommendations last year when we published our interim report. And um, a reporter actually asked Biden's press secretary last year whether Biden was aware of the task force, had received our report, and Corinne um, Corinne said, yes, actually, we have. Karen Pierce said, yes, actually, we have. We are aware of the task force. We understand the work they're doing. We have the report. Um, that's the last time we heard from them was last year. But um, I guess I'll conclude by saying the statute that created the task force, AB 3121, there's a provision in there, in there that says, in the event that the state of California um, meets out reparations to descendants of slaves, the federal government, you're still on the hook. Um, I know that's not necessarily the, the import of the question you were asking. No, it is actually, because I, I do know that the nation, I mean, just as, you know, the just as slavery impacted California, but people in California who were enslaved also impacted the nation. So it's not just, you know, what was done in California. It's this part of the larger national economy that's been benefited from um, enslaved labor, whether it's in California, South Carolina, you know, Maryland, wherever it was, you know, as a, as a part of that, um, too. Well, thank you all so very much for for coming out. I wish there were more people, but I'm glad you all came and voiced your ideas and we got to talk about some things here. I do hope that you all will continue to follow this initiative and to support it um, and, uh, and to tell other people about it and to um, ask them to look at um, the, the websites that deal with it 
and ask them to talk to their representatives, governmental representatives, to gain their support of it as well. And I want to thank Camila again for chairing this wonderful task force, for producing this magnificent document, and for speaking with us this evening. Thank you, Dr. Stevenson. Yes. CJEC Coalition for a Just This article is from news.yahoo.com Reprinted from Atlanta Black Star Written by Taylor Ardrey A-R-D-R-E-Y Thursday, November 2nd 2023 the title is I'm sorry that I let this happen white Texas man sentenced to life apologizes for fatally shooting his black neighbor after his kids left their toys on the apartment sidewalk It's going to go on for a while. The Texas man was sentenced to life in prison on Wednesday, November 1st, for fatally shooting his neighbor in front of his apartment. In addition, a jury ordered Edward Murray, 57, to pay a $10,000 fine in connection to the death of Antonio Robinson in September 2020. The Fort Worth Star Telegram reported, quote, I feel sorry for the family and the kids. Murray said in court, per the outlet. Also admitting he drank vodka before the, the encounter. Quote, I'm sorry that I let this happen. It's not about me, it's about everybody else that I hurt. End quote. The sentence comes three years after Murray grabbed his harmless correction, grabbed his hammerless revolver and opened fire at Robinson, a black man ultimately killing him.
according to the report. Robinson lived in the apartment across from Murray with his girlfriend and three children. The kids aged two, three, and nine would play with their toys on the concrete sidewalk outside of both units, leaving Murray angry per the Star Telegram. The sidewalk reportedly connected the doors of apartments separated by about 10 feet and belonging to the two men. On the day of the shooting, Murray saw a ball belonging to the children, kicked it, and decided to go inside his home to grab his firearm. Unprovoked, Murray fired three shots at Robinson and his family attempted to stop the bleeding as the outlet reported, citing court records adding that he pointed his gun at the victim's girlfriend before he left the scene. Robinson was transported to a local hospital where he was pronounced dead. Authorities arrested Murray hours later and he was charged with murder. He was reportedly found guilty on Tuesday. Robinson's girlfriend, Ashley Lacey, said that Murray, who is white, had a habit of calling the family racial slurs. Lacey said she believed the shooting was a hate crime, according to KXAS-TV. Quote, My children are going to be so traumatized because they went to sleep and took a nap and they woke up to no daddy, she told the outlet in 2020. To quote one of my friends, never dull your sparkle to make others comfortable. You are your biggest asset. Never forget that. Embrace what makes you unique.
even if it makes others uncomfortable. Janelle Monet